Father, as we come to your word, we come to a part of the story of Scripture that is uh, mysterious, troubling, wonderful, glorious, elusive to our understanding. And yet, for those of us who have entrusted ourselves to you through Christ, it is the story of our redemption. It is the most precious story that there is to us. And for those of us who do not know what to make of you and it, it's strange. So will you be our teacher? We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. And um, everybody grab your palm crosses, if you've got them. Um, Have them there in front of you. Uh, These things are really weird. So they're they're weird for a lot of reasons. Uh, they're they're some of you like if you're not used to church, if you're not used to this tradition, they're 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 just one of many things that we do that's weird, and that's fine. Um, that's great. We uh, you can feel free to call out our weirdness anytime you want. But they're also uh, weird for at least another reason. Um, so on the one hand, they're palm branches, right? And uh, palm branches. Uh, reflect and go back to the story that I summarized at the beginning of the service, which is, once again, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Uh, Just a few days before he dies, he comes into Jerusalem, and he comes in as if he's a hero, a long-awaited king that's going to make everything right. So he comes into Jerusalem, the crowd's expecting him, the crowds go wild, they say, yay, here's our king. Here's the one that's going to achieve victory for us, liberate us from Rome, uh, defeat our enemies, and make everything good. And so they're excited about that, and you can appreciate that. And so they grab palm branches, which were a sign of kingship. It was a symbol, and they lay it down on front of them. They wave it. It's a sign that they're, they're saying, this is the king, and we're delighted. And this is victory. The victory is at hand. But these are not just palms, um, they are folded into a cross. And whatever the palms were that, uh, that that crowd on that original Palm Sunday were uh, waving, it, they were certainly not palm crosses. Um, and that's part of what makes these items that we have in front of us so bizarre, because um, <clears throat> you know that a few days later, the crowd... Uh, uh, turned against, turned into a mob, turned against Jesus. And we, you and I, together, all of us, uh, were taking upon our lips their words as we were reading that. Thank you, Tim, for leading us through that reading. And they said, crucify him. The same ones, the same people who were saying, yay, this is our king, said, no, he's an imposter. Kill him. And the thing about these palm crosses that is so bizarre is that they fuse together two things that on the original Palm Sunday you would never have fused together. On the one hand, they fuse together a theme of victory together with a theme of death. And the reason that's odd is that nobody would have done that 2,000 years ago. Back then, death was defeat particularly for a Messiah. Who needs a dead Messiah? It's a contradiction in terms. 
So as odd as these palm crosses are, they're, they're also, however, brilliant. And the reason they're brilliant is by fusing together Jesus' victory, together with Jesus' death, they capture the heart of Christianity. In fact, one of the marks of, a, of, a, of somebody who has truly uh, come to terms with who Jesus is and is truly following Jesus is that um, you become convinced that the death of Jesus was not just a tragic martyrdom, that it wasn't just a run-of-the-mill execution, but rather that it is victory, that it's the epicenter of victory for the entirety of not only your life, but of the entirety of history. Which is an audacious thing to say, isn't it? What I want to do for the next few minutes is try to persuade you of the victory that is the death of Jesus. So that as we go into Holy Week, we're walking towards the death of Jesus, understanding what it is that it deeply, deeply means and the victory that's there. And I want to show you that by, um, by pointing out two things that happened in our reading the minute Jesus died. Something happened at the temple. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And then something happened to the centurion, the Roman soldier. And that's the second thing we're going to look at. Let me show you. First of all, the, the temple. Um, take a look at uh, Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 33. It said, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then skip down to verse 37 and 38. And Jesus cried out, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to replicate that cry. Well done, Tim. Cried out in a loud voice and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, picture the scene there for just a second. Because all the way through the Gospel of Mark, um, the camera angle, so to speak, has been fixed on Jesus. Uh, Jesus is in every scene, and Jesus is the focus of every single scene throughout the Gospel of Mark. And that's been the case for 15 chapters. And then Jesus dies. The main character dies. And right then, all of a sudden, for the first time, the camera angle swings. Just swings, not... no longer focused on Jesus, but now all of a sudden what you're looking at is the temple, about a half a mile away, maybe. And not only are you looking at the temple, you're actually, the scene is inside the temple, an, an area of the temple that you would have never normally seen, and you're looking at a big, giant curtain. And as you look at this big, giant curtain, all of a sudden it shreds. It starts at the top, and we're talking about a big curtain. It starts at the top, and it shreds down the middle. Now, my question is, what is Mark doing? Why is Mark so concerned about the temple? Because he doesn't even let Jesus' death sort of sink in, you know, dramatically. What's so important about the temple? 
Well, there's a little bit of a backstory, um, and the backstory goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. So um, go back to the very beginning of the Bible. You've heard the story of Adam and Eve. God creates the world, and he creates humanity, and he creates for humanity a, a home, you know, the Garden of Eden. And the great thing about the Garden of Eden at the beginning, beginning of the Bible is that Adam and Eve are able to live within the presence of God, which means at least that they were living continually under the Lord's uh, warm-hearted, affectionate love, and they could just enjoy that. That was the central joy of their lives. But then, if you know the rest of the story, um, very soon they defect, so to speak. They turn on God. They, they decide that, uh, you know, God, we're, we're better off running our own life, um, so thank you. And they signify that rejection of God by disobeying God, eating from the prohibited tree. And so what happens is God, uh, so to speak, says, okay, um, if that's what you're going to do, then you're going to have to leave my presence. You're going to have to leave Eden. I'm not going to act like we're in a close, intimate relationship anymore because we're not. You're going to have to go outside the garden. Little parentheses here. Um, As we've been going through Lent, we've been going through the story of Jonah. And have you noticed that Jonah does something very similar? The whole story of Jonah, uh, Jonah is running from the presence of the Lord. Jonah wants to call the shots. He doesn't like God. He doesn't like God's character. He runs away, and he signifies that he's running away from the presence of God uh, by disobeying God. And do you remember where that leads, Jonah? Do you remember? The more Jonah runs away from the presence of God, the more self-centered he becomes, the more hostile he becomes to God, and the more hostile he becomes to other people. And that theme just runs through the entirety of the Bible. When we reject God, we end up inevitably hostile towards God, but also increasingly dangerous to other people, sometimes in very subtle ways, but real ways nonetheless. Now, that's what happens all through the scriptures. But there's more to it than that, because what happens a little bit later, going back to Exodus, the story of Exodus, God comes, and in his great mercy, he chooses... Uh, Israel, this wayward nation, to, to be his people. And in the middle of Israel, in the middle of his people, he puts a temple. First a tabernacle, then a temple, but they did the basically same thing. And the point of the temple is that the temple was supposed to be an, uh, an embassy of Eden. It was supposed to be the one building, the one place on earth where you could at least get close to Eden, close particularly to the presence of God. In fact, once again, remember Jonah. When Jonah realizes that everything's lost and that he's about ready to to die, what does he think about? Do you remember Jonah chapter 2? He thinks about the temple. He realizes how far away from the temple he is, and he desires to get back to the temple. The temple was an embassy of Eden in the middle of the people of Israel. But here's the thing about the temple. The temple was complex. Because on the one hand, the temple said, God wants to be close to you. But on the other hand, the temple said, but don't come too close. Right? You could come close to God, but not too close. And the thing that, so to speak, said, stop, and don't come any closer to the presence of God, was a curtain. The big curtain. 
And the big curtain, it was behind the curtain that the, that the distilled presence of God was to be found. But you couldn't go past the temple, in fact, or the curtain. In fact, most people could never even see the curtain. The curtain was, you couldn't pass it. And as long as the curtain is there, it was a sign that we're left outside the garden. We're left outside of God's presence, that the uh, relationship with God has not been put back together and that we are not yet free to enjoy the Lord's uh, uninhibited, warm, affectionate love. And all through the scriptures, the human heart is yearning to get back behind the the curtain, get back home. All right, all that's background. Go back to Mark. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, imagine the scene again. And if you were there, and if you were an Israelite, seeing the curtain tear from the top to the bottom, it would have been either utterly offensive or really good news. It could have been offensive because it, it, it might suggest that somehow the temple's been desecrated. And probably nothing could be worse than that. But... It could also be good news, because it could mean, and this is what Mark means it to mean, it could mean that the way to God's presence is open. And that's the thing that Mark wants us to think about when we think about the death of Jesus. And this is what I find a little odd, because if I were writing the story, I would have, you know, I I would have wanted us to think about Jesus being dead for a little bit. Like, I'd want us to kind of let the full weight of the tragedy weigh upon the hearts of my readers. But that's not what Mark does. He wants us to see not so much the tragedy of Jesus' death, but rather he wants us to see the victory of Jesus' death. Remember what Jesus cried out in verse uh, 34. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a lot there, but what that means is that when Jesus was on the cross, at least part of what it means, is that he hung upon the cross not just as a tragic martyr, and not just as a victim of religious extremism, and not just as a victim of political corruption, though all of those things are included, but Jesus was on the cross, and this is odd, but voluntarily substituting himself for all those who are outside the presence of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the only one who really deserves to go behind the curtain. Jesus is the only one that really deserved to fully experience and embrace and enjoy that warm-hearted affection of God the Father. Do you remember the baptism? Jesus is baptized, and immediately God says, that's my boy, and I'm pleased with him. Remember? And here, while he's on the cross, he voluntarily substitutes himself so that he goes outside, so to speak, the presence of God, dying a death deserved by those who have rejected God in order that those who have rejected God and don't deserve the presence of God might be brought in forever. And that's why when we look at these palm crosses, 
We are to look at them until we can say, and until we can hear, so to speak, the Father saying, the victory has been accomplished and all has been done. Come into the presence of my warm-hearted affection. All right, that's the first part of the victory. Something happened at the temple. The curtain was torn. But then secondly, look at the centurion. Look back at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then the camera angle swings again back to the foot of Jesus' cross. And then the centurion, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, the centurion said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now, do you see the miracle that's happening there? The curtain of the temple tears and says, the way into God's presence is open. But then immediately, Mark wants us to see that a centurion sees who it is that Jesus is, and it's as if Mark wants us to look at him so that we can see that God's enemies are the first ones invited into the presence of God. Just think with me. Um, This guy, the centurion, he was obviously a professional killer, right? Uh, And just hours before this, the centurion with his team had um, uh, hauled Jesus up the hill, uh, taken the cross up there, perhaps built and constructed the cross, and then they laid Jesus down on it. Somebody held his arms down there, and then they drilled a hole through his arms and through his feet. This is what the centurion did all the time. I sometimes wonder if the centurion was looking in the eyes of Jesus when he was doing that. But I I imagine not, because I imagine that the centurion was used to it. It was was a day at, at work. But then, just a few hours later, three hours later, everything's changed for the centurion. It's bizarre. I, I don't really know how to account for it. I don't know if that maybe the centurion was, was listening to the things that Jesus was saying while he was on the cross. Mark doesn't record all of it, but perhaps he saw um, Jesus forgiving and inviting into paradise one of the other guys that was being crucified with him. Maybe uh, the centurion heard Jesus praying for his enemies while he was on the cross. I don't know what it is, but at somehow something changed in the centurion so that the moment that Jesus died, he realized something awful and something horrible that he had killed the Son of God. Can you imagine the terror of that realization? If anybody deserved to be outside God's presence, it's this guy, isn't it? If anybody deserved to be counted as God's enemy, it's this guy. I mean, I know you and I, we don't self-identify as enemies of God. Not usually. But if anybody could qualify for that, isn't it him? And we don't know entirely what the rest of the centurion's story is. But when you put the temple curtain tearing together with the centurion's realization and the fact that Mark puts them together, it seems clear that the centurion, while he watched Jesus die, 
On the one hand, he saw, he realized something horrible that he had killed the Son of God. But on the other hand, he was watching the very act that could relieve him from that horror and relieve his heart from that fear. You remember uh, the story, um, the hymn, Amazing Grace? You remember the verse that says, It was grace that taught my heart to fear, but it was grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. We don't know for sure what happened to the centurion, but all through the New Testament, Jesus' death, this thing comes up again and again. You can ask me about it later. I can show you a bunch of places. Jesus' death reconciles his most virulent enemies. And I think that's part of Mark's point here. Jesus' victory reverses the tragedy of our rejection of God in that it invites us into the presence of God, though we do not deserve it. And it particularly targets those who are most obviously God's enemies, the centurion. And if you're a Christian, you know where this goes. Because there comes a time where every Christian realizes that it's not just sin in general, it's not just evil in general in the world that put Jesus upon the cross, but a Christian at some point comes to realize that it was my sin, mine, my evil, my perpetration of evil that put Jesus upon the cross. And that's a frightening thought, isn't it? But it's also followed immediately by joy because that is also the moment when we realize that Jesus' victory is enough for me and more than enough and grabs me and draws me into a presence and to a love and to an affection that I do not deserve but I was meant to enjoy. And it allows us to hear God the Father reaching out to us, not on the basis of the good things we've done, not on the basis of how well you've observed Lent, not on the basis of how well you read your Bible, not on the basis of whatever it is that you uh, fill your mind with to tell yourself that you're okay, none of that, but the Father looks at Jesus Christ and not at you, but then he speaks to you and he says, my child, the door is open, come in, and all is done. For you. So, what's the point of these things? It means victory through death of Jesus Christ for you. And it's so important, friends, that we see the victory of Jesus on the cross because it is the, it's the engine of Christian growth. It's the truth that will make you a Christian. It is also the truth that will make you grow as a Christian. Because as you look at the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the more you internalize that, the more you'll see the Lord's beauty, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because you'll see perfect holiness and moral purity united with perfect mercy. We imagine that those things don't go together, but they do in Jesus You'll look at Jesus on the cross and you'll see infinite power united with humble submission for the sake of others. You'll see cosmic authority 
united with cosmic love. These are things that we can't bring together, but Jesus does. And as you look at Jesus and that beauty becomes clear, you'll find yourself trusting him more and more. And as your trust grows, it matures into love until you find yourself loving Jesus more than you love yourself. And then you'll find yourself wanting to obey, not out of duty, but out of delight. Is that your Christian life? And if you're not a Christian, is that what you thought the Christian life would be if you were one? Look at the cross of Christ this week. It's everything. Look at the cross of Christ until you can look at it and say, victory. Victory. And victory for me and for the world. Amen.